you're listening to a very broad history of werewolves and other things, and I am your host, Travis Roy. This is the podcast where I talk about any and every random historical subject that interests me, and hopefully interests you. Thanks for coming along. Welcome back to a very broad history of werewolves and other things. I am Travis Roy, historian, nerd. Good to have you all here again. I'm saying hi to each and every one of you, including whoever happens to be listening in Alexandria, Virginia. I see a group of you there. So today, I kind of struggled with what I wanted to talk about because I want to talk about one of the most important uh, like culturally important vacations in world history, certainly in the history of literature, certainly in the in the uh, history of Western culture, Western pop culture, Gothic culture, uh, horror culture. I'm of course talking about the famous Lake Geneva vacation attended by Mary Shelley, while well, she was married Godwin at the time, but Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron. And John Polidori. There are a couple other people there as well. I'll, I'll get to them here in a little bit. The reason I struggled, though, is because I really kind of wanted to have the podcast cover Mary Shelley's life and all of her, you know, ups and downs and that kind of stuff. But honestly, it's well-trod material. You know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of places you can go to learn about her, to learn about her life, to learn about her vacation, this important vacation. I'll touch on some stuff, but... Um, I'm going to focus instead on the slightly lesser known author from that time, which is John Polidori. In particular, I'm going to be looking at his relationship with George Gordon Byron, the, the sixth Lord of Byron, and the way that that fraught relationship led to the creation of the modern vampire myth. Now, John Polidori was born in 1795 and he was born the son of an Italian immigrant to London, an immigrant named Giattano Polidori, who was himself a man of letters and a pretty strict and domineering father. John Polidori himself was sent off to a monastery for education when he was eight, and there his relationship with his father became one that was based almost solely on the exchange of letters, and that's pretty much the rest of their lives. I mean, they um, they stayed in touch mostly via letter, and it was usually pretty contentious. Uh, Gaetano was a really hard man to please, and John was uh, an eager and very much wanted his father's approval, you know, um, and he was like that his whole life. and. No matter what happened, it seemed like his father was disappointed in him or just kind of uncaring. One of the more famous incidents from John Polidori's childhood comes from when he was in this monastery school and he was eight or nine years old. And he wrote a letter to his father saying that he and a bunch of other boys were like in the school, but pretty much like in the building, but left to their own. And a beggar woman came up knocking on the door asking for beer and they let her in and gave her some beer and then she asked for money. So they gave her some money and then she sat down and um, said that she had come to kill one of the boys in the, in the building. And that's where John's letter to his father ends. And John's father, Gitano, writes back a letter that doesn't address 
the woman that talked about killing his son or some other boy. All he does is say, uh, your spelling is atrocious. You should address your letters thusly, et cetera, et cetera. And that pretty much sets up the rest of the relationship that these two men had. John Polidori was raised Catholic. It wasn't that far away from when people were killing each other and wars were being waged between Protestants and Catholics. So he was kind of an outsider from the start. And it sounds like he was kind of an unsettled and a little bit weird guy as he got older. Um, He was definitely given to like romantic inklings, like becoming somewhat obsessed with people who maybe did not have uh, reciprocal feelings, for instance. So, um, and, and, and he, again, like he tried to buck against his father as he got older and forge his own way, but his father, Gaetano, kind of blocked him at every path. So at one point, as he was getting older, he writes his father and says, hey, I want to go fight for Italy, you know, our home country or your home country against Napoleon. And his father's like, no, you're not doing that. That's not okay. So John writes back another letter saying, okay, well, then I want to join the priesthood. And his father wrote back saying, no, also not okay. You are going to be a doctor. You're going to go to school to become a doctor at the University of Edinburgh. And John relinquished and went to that school and uh, by all accounts, you know, was was not like the other students, was not interested in what he was doing, was not passionate about what he was doing. Um, he wrote about sleepwalking for his thesis, which while everyone else was kind of writing about the usual methods of medicine of the day, which basically involved bleeding and purging, draining people of excess fluids. It was this longstanding uh, belief that there was four humors in the body, you know, these four different fluids and any illness that existed within you. This is called Galenic theory. Any uh, goes all the way back to like ancient Rome and Galen. So any any illness that was in you could be solved by draining blood, uh, inducing vomiting, you know, good old fashioned enema, whatever you got to do. And, and this was like also an era where medicine was not considered still to be a I mean, it wasn't like uh, the kind of thing that gentlemen usually did. It was not regarded with the same respect that it is now, in part because it often failed. And a lot of times bleeding or whatever, you know, physics that they uh, prescribed could do just as much damage as good, if not more likely to do damage. And on top of that, there was a reputation amongst medical students of being grave robbers. And for good reason. Most of them were. Um, it was not a, uh, a position that often paid well. And so if you didn't come from, from money, um, then you probably had to procure income from some other way. And medical universities were always trying to have new, you know, new cadavers to practice on, vivisections, dissections, that kind of stuff. So it was really common practice for medical students to engage in the ghoulish field of grave robbery, which it's not certain that John Polidori himself ever engaged in that, but he certainly would have been around that kind of stuff. John Polidori begins writing poems and writing love poems and writing plays and that kind of stuff on his own. I don't think he tells his father about this, but he starts to have dreams of becoming a famous writer and not, not just a writer, but a famous writer. And because 
Because at this time, this is like the changeover period we're looking at between the end of the Enlightenment and the beginning of the Romantic period. And at the beginning of the Romantic period, you have authors like Samuel Coleridge and poets like Percy Bysshe Shelley and, and of course, Lord Byron are, are getting really famous, in particular Lord Byron, getting really famous for a certain style of poetry that can be dubbed romantic. While the Enlightenment had really stressed a return to classical Greek philosophies and that kind of stuff, and the embrace of logic and reason and science and kind of trying to do away with, uh, with supernatural forces and religious uh, forces and trying to like focus on a more grounded uh, approach to life, the Romantic era kind of went in the opposite direction. The pendulum started swinging the other way. And, you know, of course, there was romantic-minded people around during the Enlightenment and vice versa. But with romantic poetry like Byron's, you started getting a lot more emphasis on emotion, a lot more emphasis on personal experience and how that fit into like a, an awe of the natural world and God behind it all, for instance. So Lord Byron is famous by 1816 as a, not just a poet, but as a libertine, as a playboy, as a freewheeling sexual deviant. And he's maybe more famous for his behavior than he is for his actual work. So he was a little bit older than, than Polidori. Lord Byron, born George Gordon Byron, was, was born in 1788. And his father split when Lord Byron was fairly young, and he was left in the care of his mother, who was a schizophrenic alcoholic, and by most accounts, fairly abusive, as well as a nurse that was also emotionally and physically abusive towards him. And he was impoverished the first 10 years of his life. He was not a, despite having, you know, come from this famous family name, he didn't have any money until he was about 10 years old and his uncle died and he was next in line to become the next Lord Byron. And then he was given access to all kinds of money. He was given a place uh, in the House of Lords once he was of age uh, and, his, and his life drastically improved and put him in a position where he could actually support himself and spend all of his time writing and doing that kind of stuff. But he was equally focused on the ladies. Now, he was a pretty good-looking man, as was John Polidori. Both of these guys, by anyone's measure, were pretty handsome dudes. But Lord Byron was born with a club foot, and that came with a lot of pain and a lot of issues and also, um, you know, some mental anguish on the part of Lord Byron's. I think that he probably felt that he was hideous in some ways because of it, despite his, you know, his face. He also had a lot of other health issues. I think he may have even suffered from the consumption, you know, tuberculosis. He may have even suffered from that. He's, he had some issues medically that um, kind of hounded him throughout most of his life. But what made him famous, aside from his poetry, was his dalliances, first with married women and then with men, which this was a time when, you know, people didn't really have a word for someone who loved both men and women. And... That kind of made him notorious, but also fascinating. He also 
had an affair with his own half-sister. And I'll get back to some of the other affairs that he had, but uh, he, he basically burned bridges all over town by sleeping with married women and by uh, engaging in, in behavior that at the time was considered to be quite scandalous. So he decided uh, around 1816 that he would leave town, that he would leave London. He had already met a young girl when he met her, she was 16, so that must have been a couple years prior. Uh, a young girl named Claire Claremont. She was actually born Jane Claremont, but she went by the name Claire. She thought it was prettier, I guess, and more romantic. She was the stepsister of Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, who, of course, is more, most famous for, for writing uh, Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus. Now, Mary Shelley... I'm just going to keep calling her Mary Shelley, even though she and Percy Bysshe Shelley didn't marry until 1816. Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley were freewheeling spirits of their own. They believed in free love. They believed in being debaucherous, basically. They liked laudanum, in particular, Percy Bysshe Shelley did. Now, again, I don't want to get too much into, into Mary Shelley and, and her whole background, but suffice to say that... Mary Shelley's father, William, or stepfather, actually, William Godwin, and Percy Bysshe Shelley started off friends because they were both atheists, which at the time was extremely rare, and radicals, and it didn't hurt that Percy Bysshe Shelley, before he was cut off from his family funds, was helping William Godwin pay off his debts. And it was through William Godwin and these uh, their friendship that Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley met. But Percy Bysshe Shelley was already married. Uh, his wife was, in fact, pregnant. And this scandalized William Godwin, who supposedly believed in, you know, not necessarily in marriage and was a proponent of free love and anarchism and all this kind of stuff. So he actually cut Mary Shelley off from his family. Around the same time, Percy Bysshe Shelley was cut off from his family funds, and then there's also this whole thing going on where Claire Claremont is very jealous of, of Percy Bysshe Shelley. She wants a famous poet of her own. Now, Percy Bysshe Shelley, he's somewhat famous, but it's almost like, like Lord Byron. He's actually kind of more notorious for being a atheist. I'll return to that point here in a minute after this brief message from our sponsor. Welcome back. So Claire Claremont may or may not have had some uh, sort of sexual relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley, but a series of uh, pregnancies on Mary Shelley's part. First, she she's, gives birth to a, a, a daughter who dies after two weeks. She goes through a serious depression. Claire Claremont lives with them for a while, but eventually she, she's asked to leave. And then Mary Shelley gives birth to a second child, William. About a year or so after William is born, Claire Claremont has this fling with Lord Byron before he leaves town. And Lord Byron has his fun with her, and she's about 16 at the time. He's like 26 or so, and he doesn't want anything to do with her after that. He's not interested in a long-term relationship. He's not interested in any kind of relationship, in fact, and he's just kind of done with her, and especially since he's leaving England. But now, you know what? I'll return to that. So as Lord Byron is getting ready and preparing to leave England, John Polidori has finished up his degree at the University of Edinburgh. And he comes back to London as a 20-year-old doctor. And 
the rule, well, I'm not sure whose rule this is, if it was just the regular practice or what, but he, he, like, you couldn't really practice law in London until you were 25. So here he is with a degree that he didn't want, with a skill that he couldn't really practice. And he really, again, was way more interested in writing and, and trying to become famous through his writing. So he hears through a friend of his, a mentor, actually, that Lord Byron is leaving town and is looking for a personal physician to attend him on his journeys. And he tells his father this is what he wants to do. And his father had actually done a similar thing as a young man, had traveled around as a secretary for someone and had a really bad experience. So Gaetano told John not to do it, but John didn't listen this time. On the other end of town, a friend of Lord Byron's is familiar with John Polidori and tells Lord Byron, don't take this guy with you. He is a sentimental sap. He is a bummer. Just don't hang out with this guy. You're going to have a bad time. And Lord Byron doesn't listen. He hires John Polidori. At the time, Lord Byron is also a theater director. So John Polidori, when he goes to meet him, brings a play that he had written. And he meets Lord Byron at a local bar where, where Byron is seen off uh, or is being seen off by all of his closest friends. And Rather than waiting until they are alone or, uh, you know, traveling to give him his, his play, John Polidori gives him his play right there at the table. And Lord Byron starts reading it and starts reading it out loud. And he starts making fun of it because he likes having an audience. And he just kind of mocks it so, so badly. And all of his friends are laughing so hard that Polidori, like, storms out of the bar. But that's not the end of things. He still leaves with them uh, and goes off to travel Europe with Lord Byron. So Claire Claremont somehow hears what Lord Byron's itinerary is, and she convinces Percy Bysshe Shelley and Mary Shelley to go with her to catch up with Lord Byron at Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Lake Geneva at this time is kind of like a local resort type area for, um, it's kind of like, how can I, what can I compare it to? like sandals or something like that. It's like a place where everybody goes. For, it kind of has a reputation for attracting bohemians. And that's what our protagonists here all are, except for probably John and young William. So Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron do not know each other at this point, but they're introduced on the beach in, uh, at Lake Geneva by Claire Claremont, and they hit it off famously. Lord Byron's not thrilled to see Claire Claremont, but he's aware of Percy Bysshe Shelley's reputation. And he respects him already and likes him. And they hit it off pretty well. And he ends up becoming pretty good friends with Mary Shelley as well and really likes her and respects and, and respects her and uh, encourages her to write. Because Mary Shelley is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, famous essayist and feminist you know, and writer. And William Godwin, her stepfather, is a pretty famous writer. So there's a lot of belief in Lord Byron and and Percy Bysshe Shelley that she has like this well of uh, within her of being a writer. And in fact, she'd already written one book. She, she wrote a book called uh, Six Weeks in Europe or something like that. It was basically a travel book that she had written after her first uh, stint into Europe with, with Percy Bysshe Shelley about a year or two earlier. So Lord Byron rents a pretty classy building called uh, Via Diodati. And Percy Bysshe Shelley and company rent the neighboring cottage, just maybe 100 yards away or so, that has got a name as well, but I forget what it's called. 
and uh, it commenced to have a pretty intense and fun three and a half months of partying. I mean, this is a pretty much wine and laudanum fueled uh, event. And I, I didn't, in case you're not familiar with what laudanum is, it's basically liquid opium. So they're having a pretty good and rambunctious time. So much so, in fact, that some of the neighboring resorts around the, the lake install actual telescopes pointed at Via Diodati to solely for the purpose of spying on the famous poet and his uh, young friends and watching what they're up to. They're, uh, they're notorious around town already in an area that is kind of already purported to be kind of freewheeling and fun anyways. They spend their days out on the lake, um, swimming to a degree. But the thing is, it's an extremely weird summer in 1816 when this is all going on. It's In fact, the year is famously referred to as the year without summer because um, earlier, uh, actually, I think December of 1815, I want to say, Mount Tambora in what is now Indonesia had uh, exploded and gone off. And there had also been a volcano maybe a couple years prior that had also gone off. Exploded, erupted, that's the word, erupted, it erupted. Um, so all of this smoke and ash and stuff has been billowing into the sky for, uh, for quite some time. And it really messes with the climate that summer. And so there's like, it's, it's, it's way cooler than, than average, significantly cooler weather. It's significantly rainier and drearier and grayer. There's also like a lot of red sunsets and red, you know, red skies at night and that kind of stuff. And to top it all off, there's like this uh, rumor going around with some Italian astrologer uh, had predicted the end of the world for that July. So kind of like in 2012 when, uh, you know, I want to say everybody, but you know, not all of us, but around 2012, when a lot of people were very concerned that the Mayan calendar was ending and that the world was therefore ending, uh, it was kind of similar to that. So it was definitely a weird summer um, for a multitude of reasons, especially for these individuals. And to top it all off, since they were kind of stuck indoors a lot, they found a, a French translation of a German book called the Phantasmagoria, a collection of, of German ghost stories, and started spooking one another with it and scaring each other with it. And Lord Byron gets the idea, after reading a few of these, to have a contest to see who could write the spookiest story and scare everyone in the group. And he enters the contest, and as does uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, although both these guys are um, they're, they're poets, so they kind of start something, but they're not used to prose, and they kind of give up on it pretty quickly. John Polidori plays with some sort of idea about like a skull-headed woman, supposedly, but he doesn't finish that exactly, but I'll get back to him. Mary Shelley, of course, begins to write the great novel Frankenstein uh, at that point. She's she's blocked at first. I mean, take, she doesn't do it right away, but she, she eventually comes up with the idea. And it's based on a lot of things. I mean, in her travels, for instance, uh, previously, 
the, the during the six week excursion she had taken the year before, she had come across um, the ruins of Castle Frankenstein, a very real place where a very real alchemist had tried to come up with a secret of life uh, many hundreds of years earlier. I tried to come up with like a, the uh, secret to immortality because alchemists of the Middle Ages often were either concerned with the or were often trying to come up with the philosopher's stone, which uh, could spin gold out of air or whatever, uh, or some sort of secret to immortality. On top of that, she's having many conversations with Percy and with Lord Byron and John Polidori about the nature of life, some of the newer things that are being developed, like galvanism. So that's like where Galvani, this Italian scientist, learned that if you electrified certain nerve endings and, and frog corpses, they'd start jerking and twisting around. So people started understanding that like there's electrical pulses that run through the, the neurosystem of, of people. Look at me. I almost sound like I know what I'm talking about, like I'm a scientist or something. And she, there's also a lot of interest in the, the field of electricity, which has not been harnessed yet, but people are starting to really understand that it could be and its potential for power. Um, and also she's talking to John Polidori about grave robbers, almost certainly. That's the kind of stuff that she's talking to him about and the experiences of being a medical student. John Polidori had quite a crush on Mary Shelley, it sounds like. But Lord Byron and he did not get along very well from the start, as I, as I kind of was alluding to already. Their relationship soured really, I mean, from the, from the start. And he liked to toy with John Polidori. For instance, he and Polidori are standing on a balcony at Via Diodati, watching Mary Shelley walk up to their house from the other house that they had rented. And they're about eight feet up or so when Lord Byron knowing that John Polidori is crushing on Mary, says to him, hey, you know, a gentleman would jump down there and, and walk her, you know, take her arm and walk her into the house. And John Polidori just leaps off the balcony and drops eight feet and twists his ankle and springs it really bad and ends up spending weeks in bed. Uh, but it's supposedly, possibly on that day that Mary Shelley and he had this extended conversation about the nature of life and um, and that kind of stuff. And, and I'm sure that Byron and others were were involved. But all of this is, uh, you know, not meant to last. It all kind of starts to sour. First, Lord Byron is, you know, he soured on Claire Claremont from the beginning. Uh, little William is kind of toddling around doing God knows what. Uh, he's not usually referred to in, in a lot of the sources on this material. And it sounds like he got along really well with Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley. But, uh, you know, three and a half months of regular contact with somebody, it, you know, it starts to, um, you know, he, he, he was a rolling stone and needed to move on. So he eventually leaves Lake Geneva and, uh, and kind of bids farewell to them. He, he takes off with John Polidori, but uh, Polidori leaves his employ within like a month or so. They just hated each other. Now, John Polidori picks up what Lord Byron had started. And, and I don't think that there was much there because what John Polidori writes is very clearly a critique of Lord Byron himself. Now, Lord Byron had had an affair with a woman named Lady Caroline Lamb, who very famously referred to him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is like not kind of a cool way of being remembered, I guess, because it's, it's usually how people describe him based on her description of him. 
Now, they had had an affair in England, and she wrote a book called Glen Arvin. And in that book, the character of Count Glen Arvin was very clearly based on Lord Byron, and he had these... Uh, he had like this ability to suck her in and suck her dry. Um, and so really, in part, this idea of an emotional vampire starts with her and basing um, her character of Lord Arvin or of Count uh, of Count Glen Arvin on on Lord Byron. There's also another name in that book that she refers to him by, which is uh, Count Ruthven. So. Count Ruthven is the name that John Polidori uses when he picks up the pen and finishes what Lord Byron started. So vampire tropes existed for a long time. In fact, throughout history, uh, particularly like in Eastern Europe, like what, like Serbia and that kind of areas, um, there was this long-standing belief in vampires, but they were more like zombies. And in fact, there was also a lot of overlap between zombies. Well, they didn't use they didn't use that word, but between like ghouls, the undead, vampires, and werewolves. Now, this is all happening before the Mercy Brown vampire panic that kicks off in 1892. In fact, that that panic was probably in part informed by what John Polidori writes. And what he writes is a book called The Vampire, V-A-M-P-Y-R-E. And there's also, you know, these old myths about consumption, or I'm using this old-timey language, about tuberculosis and how that probably led to ideas about, about vampires. And all, and all that's perfectly true. But what John Polidori does with The Vampire, his, his short story, is he dignifies the vampire, first of all, by taking him out of the graveyard and putting him in a castle. And he also kind of codifies certain behaviors and abilities, such as the ability to mesmerize people, like to hypnotize women with his glances and that kind of stuff. He makes Lord Ruthven uh, an aristocrat, and he describes Lord Ruthven as just draining the life and soul out of everyone around him. Which it seems like that's how John Polidori felt about Lord Byron, as if he just sucked him dry. And Lord Byron sounds very much like that kind of person, but I don't know that he was as bad as John Polidori thought he was, because John Polidori, for his part, seemed pretty sullen and easily offended. Things start going bad for a lot of these people shortly after the vacation is over. Young William dies by the time he's five years old. I'm not sure of what, but uh, child mortality was pretty high at that time. Percy Bysshe Shelley drowned not too long after and uh, was burned. His, his corpse was burned, and Mary Shelley kept his heart wrapped in a, a collection of his poems in, a, in her writing desk pretty famously. Lord Byron would live a bit longer, uh, but eventually he would die of some disease, I think dysentery, while trying to fight for Greek independence. But before he dies, he first of all writes his publisher, John Murray, back in London and asks him to help John Polidori get published. Sometime shortly after the vacation, John Polidori finishes The Vampire and he loses it or something. It falls out of his hands and it falls into the hands of a publisher named Henry Colburn. And Henry Colburn gets it, and there's no name on it. He sees Lord Ruthven and knows that that is a reference to Lord Byron, and he thinks that it's really well written. 
And so he publishes it uh, without, you know, knowing who it belongs to, but he, uh, he, he accredits it to Lord Byron. And that's how it's originally published. Lord Byron, for his part, is like, no, this was not my work. And he rejects authorship of it. William, I'm sorry, John William Polidori, he, you know, makes the claim that it's his once he finds out about it. But by that point, things have already kind of gotten out of hand and it's become a sensation. It's become really popular. And even after Colburn removes Lord Byron's name from it, people are getting manuscripts and writing uh, Lord Byron's name and, and on it themselves and because everyone just kind of believes that he's, uh, that he's the true author. And now, John Polidori, for his part, uh, his life was going to continue to be filled with woe. Prior to learning that his book had become a runaway success, he himself was a victim of an accident, a, a carriage accident that gave him a pretty massive head injury and put him in a coma for a few weeks. And when he came out of it, he wasn't really the same anymore. He was, um, he had a lot more trouble governing his emotions and his anger and his sadness, which it sounds like he had trouble with that kind of stuff anyways. So he returns to London, learns that his, you know, his work has become a success and is being credited to this person that he despises. And it just fills him with absolute sorrow and anger. He takes a few more stabs at trying to find new work, but um, he suffers from being unable to find consistent income and combined with everything else, he eventually at the young age of 25 poisons himself and kills himself. And he doesn't see that this book, The Vampire, inspires legions of imitators and does for many decades to the point that Bram Stoker himself, when he picks up the pen and writes his version of the vampire story, Dracula, he is also directly emulating John Polidori's version of the vampire myth. So Lord Byron was a complicated and, you know, difficult guy, um, probably a bit of a, a challenge to be around. But, you know, I don't think that he was a villain. I think that he was just, you know, wounded and, and also wild and fun and weird and, uh, and didn't have a lot of patience for melodrama which is funny because he was a, you know, a poet of, of like a romantic poet. And John Polidori, I think that he was a good man probably and well-intentioned, but it seems like his luck did not uh, really bear out. And it sounds like his, you know, his life was short and tragic and um, he left this imprint on all of Western society and, you know, the world society, you know, vampires are, are, are everywhere now. Um, but, you know, he never was aware, you know, he never got to be aware of the impact that he had on people. He never got to see the fame that he craved so badly, um, which I think is just a really sad and tragic tale. But I, I think it's important to recall these events and to give John Polidori his place in Gothic literature history. Bram Stoker is great and all, but John Polidori should be best remembered for being the one to really revolutionize and modernize vampire myths. And of course, Mary Shelley, for her part, changed the world that summer too. All right, I'm going to uh, wrap this up now with a recommendation, which is to read The Vampire. And if you haven't read Frankenstein, you really should. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read, and I read it about once or twice a year. It's amazing. 
And I also suggest that you look more into the life of Mary Shelley. I mean, again, like I'm kind of bummed I didn't go more into it myself, but I mean, there was was a movie that just came out about her recently. There's all kinds of podcast episodes already devoted to her. There's a lot of information about her uh, that you can find out there, which is all very fascinating. So I recommend you look into her and her work and John Polidori's work as well. And why not Percy Bysshe Shelley, too? He's probably best remembered from this, for this poem called Ozymandias, which I think is apropos to modern times. And I'll, I'll read this to you, and then we'll call it a day. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Damn, that's good. All right, I'll leave it right there. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I wish you the best possible day you could ever have for the rest of your life. A Very Broad History of Werewolves and Other Things is written by me, Travis Roy, produced by Brennan Storr, and recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 